All right, so we are kicking off the Christmas season, singing carols. There are Christmas decorations in all the stores. Of course, they already have a layer of dust on them because they've been out since Halloween. Um, And yes, we're still picking turkey out of our teeth from Thanksgiving. But hey, it's never too early to start Christmas, right? So Christmas is a time of hope and anticipation. I mean, do you remember as a kid the Christmas countdown? You know, I was so excited. I would just be crawling out of my skin, you know, dreaming of what wonderful presents I would get. You know, all those great classic toys like Lincoln Logs and Legos, you know, a Rubik's Cube or maybe even a Magic 8-Ball. You know, (laughs) kids these days, you know, they want electronics, electronics, you know, things like an iPad or an Xbox, their own laptop computer or a cell phone. You know, the only electronic thing I can remember getting as a kid was the Operation game. Do you remember that game? I mean, it was the fat guy. You take the tweezers, you know, you try to take out his, his, his funny bone without his nose lighting up, you know. Oh, man. You know, it was horrible. So here's a picture of me and my brother on Christmas morning with our soccer boppers. You know, that's a classic gift right there. I mean, there's a free excuse to beat up on your little brother. Who needs an iPod? I mean, that's a great gift right there. Perfect. You know, those were the days, you know, it just seemed like they were simpler times, a little more innocent, and a lot more hopeful. You know, I think it all kind of started to change back at Y2K. You know, you remember Y2K when we all stocked up on spam guns and bottled water because we thought the world was going to end? You know, and not long after that was September 11th, and we just sat at our TVs and watched in horror as planes flew into the World Trade Center. It was horrible. And then right after that, we had this anthrax scare, you know, where we were all afraid to open our mail. And uh, not long after that came rolling in wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And then the economy collapsed and banks started to fail. Major companies became bankrupt. There was unemployment, and then Ebola, <laughs> and then the rise of Syria, and I, of ISIS, and, and then Paris. And Well, I haven't looked at the news this morning because I'm afraid to. I mean, it's crazy. It feels like cloud after cloud of darkness is just rolling in on us. And it's really starting to get to us, I think. You know, you, you go to the movies to kind of lift up your spirits. And half of the movies today are about people trying to survive after the apocalypse, you know, or these kids are killing each other, or the environment is dying, and so we all have to move to outer space. I mean, gone are the days of Herbie the Love Bug and Son of Flubber, (laughs) the Shaggy Dog. I miss those days, you know, and I really miss them for my kids. You know, the title of today's message is Hope in Times of Darkness, and I think It's great timing because we all really need a little hope these days. And I also think it's really helpful for us to keep in mind that these aren't the only times that people have struggled with darkness. In fact, it's really helpful for us to look back into the past in order to gain perspective as we move into the future. And so we're going to take a little trip back about 2,700 years, actually, and look at the life of a man named Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet of God who spoke to his nation Israel during a time of great difficulty and darkness. You see, Israel was being battered from enemies all around them. And at the same time, they were corroding from within by their own moral collapse. And so here are some of the markers of Israel's time. One, there was a rejection 
of God and moral corruption. You can fill that in there in the outline that's in your program right there. Rejection of God and moral corruption. You see, as, as times got bleaker and darker for Israel, they refused to turn to God. And in fact, they sort of fully turned away from him. And I want you to listen to God's heart as he spoke to the nation through his prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 1, 3 to 4 says this. Even an ox knows its owner, and a donkey recognizes its master's care. But Israel doesn't know its master. My people don't recognize my care for them. Oh, what a sinful nature they are, loaded down with a burden of guilt. They're evil people, corrupt children who have rejected the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. You know, when, uh, when difficulties rise up and we start to struggle, some folks, you know, they turn to God. And others, what they'll do is they just sort of grasp hold of control and look for their own answers and solutions. And it seems like the more desperate the times are, the more desperate solutions people will look to. You know, at this time, in this case, the people sought all kinds of strange superstitions and sexual deviancy and cultic practices you know, to try to alleviate and appease themselves and the foreign gods around them. Matter of fact, Israel's own king Ahaz took his son and sacrificed him in a fire for the gods of the Canaanites. And Isaiah's words really boil down and drill into the core issue here, and that was their rejection of God's care and authority over their life. And it seems like the further they ran away from God, the darker things became. Another sign of this time was fear and destruction. Fear and destruction. Outside of God's protection, the people of Israel became vulnerable to the attack of the enemies around them. In particular was the Assyrian war machine that was headed by uh, their leader, Tiglath-Pileser III, and his successors, who for a period of two decades came in and they invaded Israel, they destroyed them, and then they started to cart off people to Assyria. Isaiah 1-7 says this, Your country lies in ruins, and your towns are burned. Foreigners plunder your fields before your eyes and destroy everything that they see. You see, at its very peak, the Assyrian Empire was as large as from Egypt all the way to the southeastern tip of Turkey, including Iran and Iraq. Their capital was named Nineveh, which may sound familiar, which is near the modern-day city of Mosul in Iraq. And the Assyrians became world-famous throughout the world for their use of a new military weapon, terror. You see, they had powerful bows and battering rams. They had archers on, on, on horseback. But really what terrified the people more than anything else and drove them into submission was their reputation for sheer and utter brutality. This is a picture. It's a pictograph that was excavated from the palace of Tiglath-Pileser III. You see, the Assyrians' kings, they boasted of all of their atrocities by having these things carved in the posts of their palace. And this pictograph from the early 700 BCs, early 700s of BC, it's incredibly mild compared to others that you can view if you were to go to the British Museum. In those depictions, you'll see all kinds of horrific things, like people being skinned alive, beheaded, impaled on poles with their feet, their hands, and their tongues chopped off. Their eyes gouged out. 
And the nation of Israel lived in this constant threat of terror from this, this tremendous, brutal enemy. At this same time, Israel also was battling economic turmoil. Incredible economic turmoil. See, from years of, of war and hardship, invasions, and even internal corruption, they became economically devastated. Isaiah 8, 21 and 22 says this. They'll go from one place to another, weary and hungry. And because they're hungry, they will rage and curse their king and their God. They will look up to heaven and down at the earth. But wherever they look, there'll be trouble and anguish and dark despair. It's kind of interesting if you notice they're looking up and down and all around them for someone else to blame. And what they fail to see is their own responsibility for the situation that they're in. All they saw was darkness and despair. And so here's a question. How does this relate to us today? Well, in case you haven't already encountered a really bad case of deja vu, I want to tell you what that is. And that's that today we're facing so many of the same situation and darkness that Isaiah experienced so long ago. First, there is darkness around me. There is darkness around me. Not long ago, um, USA Today newspaper, newspaper had a, a feature headline. It said this, as a new year begins, there's more worry than hope. The article cited a recent Gallup poll where 80% of Americans said that they were experiencing severe anxiety about the future. People said overwhelmingly that they believed that taxes would go up, crime would rise, prices soar, and the economy continued to, to continue to sink. And most Americans said that they felt that America's best days were behind us. So we live in these times of uncertainty and instability, and there's a lack of hope all around us. And we're not exactly sure where to turn. We're getting desperate. But the last place that we are turning is to God. You see, it almost seems as if God right now in culture has become the enemy. And so we're turning to all sorts of crazy theories and ideas and philosophies. And yet at the same time, our standard of morality, why it's changing faster than a model in a fashion show, it's whizzing by us. For decades, America has, you know, we, we've kind of gone by the standard, what's called the Judeo-Christian ethic. I mean, you've heard of it probably before, which is basically morals and standards from the Bible. And while we've thrown that out entirely, and now these days, it's almost dangerous to say that anything is right or wrong. And on top of that, we see ourselves as just being so progressive, you know, to just put all of our views and, and our morality and kind of make it align with the time and what people's opinions are. And yet we readily admit that the media has more influence over our worldview than we care to admit. You know, it's like we are being fed our belief system, one program, TV show and movie at a time. It's kind of scary because absolute truth doesn't exist in a society where there's no absolutes and there's no truth. We've embraced this theory called relativism. And we kind of believe that we can make up our own truth. And the motto of the day is, well, I can do just about anything I want to as long as it doesn't harm someone else. <laughs> Does anybody really, really see the danger in this? You see, this mantra of the feel-good generation, it sounds so slick. 
but we're just beginning to taste the iceberg of what this poisonous theory and philosophy is having on the younger generations that are coming behind us. It kind of reminds me, I don't know if you remember the Far Side cartoons that, you know, I think they're still in the newspaper, but there was this one of where all these lemmings are on a cliff and they're jumping off one by one while lemmings on the other side are holding up rating cards, you know, oh, you got a nine. You know, it's just sheer insanity. Here's how the dictionary defines moral corruption. This is a secular dictionary. Not caring between what's good and what's bad and only focusing on one's own means to an end. And that kind of sums it up. You know, whenever people try to play their own God, what it does is it disintegrates their own humanity and it also violates everyone around them. You see, we also live in a time of fear and destruction and news headlines are coming at us, you know, like waves from a hurricane, one after another, planes blowing up, genocide, suicide bombers, crucifixions, ISIS, sleeper cells, economic collapse, joblessness, unemployment. We see race wars, class wars, protests. The world's kind of like a shaken soda can. It's just ready to explode. And then top of all of this, there's the darkness within me. There's the darkness within me. And here's where it kind of gets a little bit personal. (laughs) You know, it's kind of easy for us to look around us and see all of this darkness and to acknowledge that it's there. It's much more harder for us to really take a good look in the mirror and be willing to admit and stare face to face with the darkness inside of us. Jeremiah 17.9 says this. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? You see, the greatest darkness in the world is basically the self-centeredness of the human heart. It's all about me. The me-first philosophy is where the misery of the world comes from. You know, we can blame a whole lot of things. You know, we can (laughs) blame politics or religion or personalities. But at some point, we have to admit and own up to the fact that the heart of the problem is the problem with our heart. Now, I will admit this to you. My greatest source of pain in my own life is due to my own selfishness. And that is the source of the greatest pain that I cause in others' lives as well. We all need help. And the chaos that's around us really just reflects the chaos that's within us. And the great deception of the human heart is that we're just not willing to admit this. It's easier for us to kind of turn away and we blame, you know, we avoid the whole thing and we run. And when we run from God, you see, God calls out to us. But at some point, the most loving thing that God can do for you and me is to let us go. It's to let us go because we can only be ready for light when we've lived in the darkness for a while. And we can only be ready for the presence of God when we've experienced the absence of God. You see, because it's from the deep, deep darkness that God's light shines the brightest. And that is the beauty of Christmas. You see, the message of Christmas comes to a dark world and a desperate heart. That Jesus brings hope. And in him, nothing and no one is hopeless. You see, God's love comes to us when we least expect it 
and also when we least deserve it. It's, our darkness is, is, is pierced through like a quasar, bright and shining, giving us hope and life. And Jesus is the hope of the world. And I want to tell you why. Because one, Jesus is the answer to the darkness around us. Jesus is the answer to the darkness around us. See, um, Isaiah's words, they turn from darkness to hope as he tells of God's promised Messiah, a Savior that will bring hope and set them free from the darkness. Listen to what Isaiah says in in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. He says this, Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You know, we read these words from Isaiah, and I'm telling you, there's no comparison to how we react to what the original hearers, how they would have reacted to this. You see, they saw this from a whole different perspective. When he mentions these places, Zebulun and Naphtali, those were on the very northern outreaches of Israel. The Assyrians had come in and taken away most of the people from that area. There were very few Israelites even left in that area. I mean, it was barely even considered to still be a part of Israel. And Isaiah mentions a specific road in this area. It's called the Way of the Sea or the Via Maris. I want to show you a picture of the Via Maris. Now, the Via Maris was this major trade route that linked the whole ancient world at that time. It connected all these continents. And along this route, there was a section that was sandwiched between the Sea of Galilee and the Galilee Mountains. And this was a strategic spot. Because nations after nations, in this spot that we know as Capernaum, they fought and battled for control of this area. Because they knew that if they controlled that area, they could control the trade for the entire world. And so as nation after nation came in and rose and fell from power, they introduced their culture and belief systems to this area. And so over time, it became this whole melting pot of all kinds of cultic ideas and religious philosophies and different temples from the different areas around the world, Egyptian, Greek, and Roman, and other temples. You can go there today and still see the remnants of these still standing. And so the Jewish people named this area and despised it. Galilee of the Gentiles. It was a place of deep spiritual darkness. And yet it was from this area that Isaiah prophesied that from this place would come a great and glorious light. Isaiah predicted 600 years, more than 600 years, before Jesus the Messiah was ever born, that he would appear in this area And you see, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Galilee. He did the majority of his ministry in Capernaum. It's where he taught. It's where he called his disciples. James, John, Andrew, Peter, the fisherman, Matthew, the tax collector. Don't you see the hand of God in all of this? I mean, there's no more strategic place in all the world of all that time where Jesus could have more influence. It's where he appeared and did his ministry. The trade route of the nations traveled right through his doorstep. And news that came from this area traveled all across the globe. 
Jesus came to a place of deep darkness to bring light and hope to the world. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would be a child. He predicted and called him Mighty God, a child and God. Isaiah 7.14 says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel, who is God with us. God came as a man to be with us and to deliver us from darkness. And that is the greatest hope in all the world. I mean, it's like taking a beach ball to the bottom of a pool and just releasing it. And hope springs forth over fear and darkness and gives us life and meaning and joy. And it's the message that God's love is big and generous and it's for the whole world. And John 3, 16, John tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever would believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. Yeah. God's love is not only big, but it's also small. It's small enough to meet the needs of your own personal heart. And that's the fact that Jesus is the answer to the darkness within us. Jesus satisfies the deepest need of the human heart. He came to live for us, and he came to die for us. And his death satisfies the penalty of our separation from God. Romans 3, 22 to 25 says this. We're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life shedding his blood see jesus did what we can't do for ourselves as a perfect and eternal savior he perfectly he was the only one who could perfectly and eternally pay for our sin and when we place our faith and trust in him god credits jesus death on our behalf he sees us as forgiven he adopts us as his children, as we are in Christ, and Jesus becomes our eternal hope. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. And Hebrews 6.19 says that this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our soul. It's secure. It's eternal. It's based in the life of Christ himself. It's the hope that no matter what circumstances you are in, that God understands, he knows, and he walks with you. Hebrews 14 assures us that Jesus understands our weaknesses and faced all of the same hardships and temptations that we do. 
Jesus can relate to us. He sympathizes with us. And his love transforms us. You see, this is the brilliance of all of it. It's because we're deeply, deeply forgiven by God that we can learn to forgive ourselves. And we can learn to forgive others. And it's because of that unconditional, deep, gracious love of God as it soaks deeply into us that we can begin to love as God does. And as each and every life is transformed, you know, learning to give instead of to take, learning how to love instead of to hate, learning how to forgive and be set free, then this becomes one life at a time, the hope of the world. And it all begins, it all begins with a personal gift of grace. And it just seems so simple, doesn't it? And yet there's nothing, there's nothing that confronts our pride more than the free gift of Jesus Christ. We don't like to wave the white flag. (laughs) It's not easy to accept that you're broken and that you can't fix yourself and that you need help from God. But if nothing short than the death of the Son of God can save you, then you do need help. And God loves you enough to die for you, but you have to give up control of your life. And that's descending lower than most people are willing to go, but that is exactly what Jesus did for us. And as a free gift, you know, God's grace of Jesus needs to be received. And some of you may want to receive the hope that Jesus Christ can bring. And some of you may not. But for those of you who have, these words from Isaiah are so helpful to direct our hearts. Isaiah 12, 4 and 5 says this. In that wonderful day, you will sing. Thank the Lord. Praise his name. Tell the nations what he's done. Tell them and help them. Let them know how mighty he is. Sing to the Lord, for he has done wonderful things. Make known his praise around the world. Isaiah expresses the heart of the one who has found hope in Jesus Christ. To thank God is to be grateful for all that he's done. So one of the great things that we can do, not just in the Thanksgiving season, but especially in the season of Christmas, is to cultivate a deep sense of gratitude, to work at that and to honor God with that. And Isaiah also encourages us to tell others. You know, as we've mentioned, there are so many people that are lost and struggling in darkness right now. So I just encourage you to demonstrate care, to listen carefully and share the hope that's in you. You know, in your program, you've got invitation cards to to this Advent series. Invite someone to come with you and help them discover that Jesus is the hope of the world. Let's pray. Lord God, we, um, we're, we're just confounded by the mystery um, of the miracle that you would love us so much that you would reach deep into the darkness and offer us a light to grab onto. And that light is the life of your son, Jesus Christ. And for some of us today, God, you know, maybe just the pieces have fallen together and, and you've tug on our hearts and we just (laughs) want to respond we want to grab hold of that hope and so i pray god for those that are here today that want to do that that 
the words aren't important, but the attitude of the heart is, and they would just say to you, God, I don't understand all this, but I just sense that you're calling my heart, and I want to respond yes. I want to say I need you. I recognize my selfishness. I recognize that I'm broken. Please forgive me of my sin. Please give me a new life. Help me to sense the hope that you can bring, not only for this life, but in the life to come. And Lord God, all of us here, God, we want to acknowledge just the miracle and beauty of the hope of Jesus in this Christmas season, the anticipation of the life that we have in him and his coming again to make all things right with the world. And we thank you, Lord. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Mm. Amen. Amen. God is so good.